Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the FISA blog and author of a special relationship, Trump Epstein, and the secret history of the Anglo-American establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W dot blogspot.com and procure a copy of that book and my other works at the farm's official store which is at the farm podcast dot store that is the farm podcast all one word dot store and please consider signing up for the farm's patron you get two additional full-length shows per month that's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content i've got some nice upcoming ones too russ baker will be joining me hopefully eric davis and the return of robert guffey among others so on that note i have got a huge cast of characters with me for today's show all of them repeaters save for one the first of those repeaters has been in the podcast racket for well over 10 years and an ongoing exploration of consciousness spirituality high weirdness parapsychology and even skeptics he's the host of skeptico the number one podcast on the science of human consciousness he is also the author of why science is wrong about almost everything and the recently released why evil matters folks i give you guys the great alex sakaris alex thank you so much for dropping by again today sir no recluse i'm really glad we're doing this thank you sir all right our next guest up is a bit of a jack of all trades he has most recently lent the farm his expertise in cryptocurrencies folks i give you guys the great clay vandevar clay thank you for dropping by again today sir Oh, Recluse, thank you so much for having me. Uh, and I, I look forward to honoring uh, Don's legacy today. It'll be, it'll be wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. All right. The sole newbie is the internet commentator commonly known as Frank Frivolous. Uh, if you guys had ever frequently, uh, frequented my blog, Buys of View, you may recall some comments Frank has left periodically over the years, and they have always been most welcome. He is a defector from the infamous Unification Church, and he's coming to us today using his actual name, which is Wade Davis. Wade, thank you so much for joining us for this one, sir. My pleasure. All right. And also joining us is the bulk of the researchers behind the farm's celebrated podcast series on the World Anti-Communist League, or Wackle. For this reason, I often refer to these guys as the Wackle crew. First up is my research partner, the great Keith Allen Dennis. Keith, thank you for dropping by today, sir. Hey, man. Nice to be with you. Thank as you. Always, as always. And also, Moss Robinson will be joining us here in a little bit, uh, though he is uh, still at work for the time being, but uh, he will be here directly. And hopefully John Brisson, if we've read the documents, will also be able to drop in. John is uh, sadly struggling with car troubles while he is en route from Kentucky to North Carolina, but he is going all out to make it here because today's show is an important one for everybody here. I've assembled such an impressive cast together for today's show because the topic is, well, it's a, it's a hard one for us. Our subject is the farm's resident ex-cultist who had previously gone by the handle Don Diligent. Uh, now, however, I feel comfortable in using Don's real name, which was Ed Kaufman. <clears throat> I say was because Ed has recently departed us at the end of September, 2021. 
Uh, for those of you who heard Ed on the Farms Wackle series or his appearances on other shows, such as our exploration of the moral rearmament movement, or the first installment of the Secret History of Ufology series, you know this is not a minor loss. Ed was a pivotal researcher of the highest order. As a former Mooney, he had insights into the Unification Church and the broader white right-wing movement that it was a part of that can never be replicated. The research he was doing at the time of his death on these matters was absolutely groundbreaking. Many of us here will hopefully be able to continue Ed's work through various projects we're working on. It's my hope that in the years to come, <clears throat> the public at large will come to know how groundbreaking Ed's research truly was, as many of us in this interview already know it to be. Now, you guys are going to hear a lot about how important Ed's research is throughout this podcast. But as great of a researcher as Ed was, he was an even better human being. He was nothing short of amazing. And I sincerely wish more people had gotten to know Ed on a personal level, as many of us here had. He was a true inspiration. So I first encountered Ed, uh, like many of the people on this show, through my Wackle series. Started out as a series of articles I wrote in my blog nearly a decade ago. This exploration of the infamous World Anti-Communist League was a tough thing to write. You know, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Wackle was a rogues gallery of aging Nazi war criminals, drug lords, armed traffickers, religious fanatics, and various former intelligence and military officers from the world over. For much of the latter Cold War, it was literally the visible personification of the fascist international. I first started writing about Wackle in 2013, and I've come back to it time and again over the years. It is a terrible subject. It's the hardest thing I've ever covered. But it's an important one nonetheless, and I felt that there were two particular aspects that had not been properly addressed before. The first was the organization's ties to drug trafficking. It became evident to me, even after limited research, that this organization was knee-deep in the international drug trade and funded a good chunk of the Black International's activities through this particular revenue stream. A few researchers, such as the great Peter Dale Scott, have mentioned the drug angle, but the other one I was most interested in is rarely if ever addressed. And that <clears throat> is the litany of cults that comprised Wackle. Now, some of them were obvious, like Mexico's Las Tecos, Italy's Propaganda Dewey, and some of the Eastern European outfits like the Iron Guard. But even groups such as the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalist Bandera, or the OUNB, as they are commonly referred to, while nominally political organizations were cults for all sakes and purposes. And this was true of many other organizations behind Wackle, like Taiwan's KMT party, or any of the number of death squads working with the league's Latin American partners. But as far as cults within Wackle go, none could surpass the Unification Church. For decades, the Moon Organization was at the forefront of Wackle's financial support and one of its most devoted backers. It was this aspect of my research that I think more than anything made Ed want to reach out to me around 2017. He first made overtures through me through one of the gentlemen sitting with us on this podcast, Mr. Wade Davis. Now Ed began sharing some of his research with me and gradually I began working into my own. Our first significant collaboration was one of the appendixes to the Fringe series I published on my blog. Ed provided some compelling details about the Unification Church's links to the New Age movement. 
That was the thing. Ed and I shared a, uh, a mutual fascination and how the far right often intersected with high weirdness. It's a topic that we explored together time and again over the past few years. Uh, when I decided to do a podcast on Wackle in 2020, Ed was one of the first people I thought of to reach out to. I knew his insights as an ex-Mooney would be invaluable, but even that was an underestimation on my part. Ed was the star of the series. But more than that, in roughly the year and a half that Ed and I worked on the Wackle series, I got to know Ed on a personal level, and the man I knew was nothing short of amazing. People say that a lot when someone dies, but in this case, it is not hyperboil. Ed Kaufman was literally dying throughout the time he recorded the Waggle series with us. And he knew this. The last time I spoke with him, a good chunk of our conversation revolved around his mortality. He knew he would not live to see some of the projects we were working on based on his research come to completion. And his core... Ed Kaufman was a seeker. He wanted enlightenment to know the great mysteries. The Unification Church took advantage of his idealism and manipulated and abused him for 30 years. Despite the tremendous degree of suffering that Ed had experienced during these years, to say nothing of the toll that it took on his body, he dedicated much of the last decade of his life towards helping others. And despite all that he endured, he never lost his empathy for other human beings, and he always looked for the best in people. So I will just say that for my money, Ed Kaufman is a hero. I hope you guys will keep that in mind when you go through the podcast that Ed did, and you will help us keep Ed's memory and his work alive. Ed was doing something that he believed to be vitally important, and he was right. And he literally worked at this until the day he died. Only a true hero has that kind of devotion and self-sacrifice. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to the rest of you guys. So, Alex, uh, let's start with you. Tell us how you came to know Ed Kaufman. Alex, are you there? The dang mute button always gets us, doesn't it? <laughs> no, first recluse. I have to say that was awesome. And I think it's you just laid some great guideposts that I want to hit on as well. So I came to know through my show, through Skeptico. I see how long, because I know he's been emailing me with great stuff. You know, like people email you. And you can immediately kind of judge where they're at. But Ed, from the beginning, came with, you know, high quality, uh, directed comments about the show and suggestions that were always really spot on. So we developed just kind of this email conversation. And then I heard him on the farm and you guys just knocked it out of the park, I have to say. is fantastic. But for years, I was really kind of reluctant you know, to have Ed on, on the show, I just, I just, I was moving towards uh, this kind of mind control cult religion series. And I, I had it in the back of my mind that, uh, you know, Ed would be great and that we'd do that and we'd get around to it. And then 
you know, it's just kind of funny. I, I got to tell the story of how it happened. So then finally, I forget the exact email, but it kind of pushed me over the top. I said, Ed, you know, we got to we got to get you on. I said, but first I need a, a, a talk with you. And I rarely do pre-interviews, especially with somebody I know. And I said, Ed, the the, you know, elephant in the room here is how the fuck do you stay in the Moonies for 30 years? You know, not how do you get in? You know, you get sucked in, whatever. And uh, I was real direct with him. And I really, really appreciated his answer right off the bat. And I knew that we were kind of Dharma brothers in this thing because Ed, despite having gone through what he went through with this quote unquote new religious movement, I love to use that term because let's not forget that's how it has to be uh, politic to be politically correct. That's what we have to call all those things. But Ed had Ed was a seeker, like you say, and a seeker who maintained being a seeker through all that. And the awesomeness of the interview we recorded and let me let me digress one second you know so uh, you know you've done a ton of shows probably all, a lot of you guys have done a ton of shows i've done hundreds and hundreds of shows i've screwed up the recording on them one other time i can think of so ed comes on the show and all of a sudden the zoom is just completely gone it just isn't working you know and i'm even like well let's just reschedule this you know he can't figure out why it's not working it's been working for him it's been working for me so at the last minute I go, okay, well, let's switch over to Skype. I haven't used Skype for years. And, you know, lo and behold, the recording doesn't work out on my side, my fault. But that interview we did, and it was two hours. I don't usually go two hours. It was like deeply spiritual, man. At the end, we had connected on some really deep spiritual issues that were pressing for me and also were pressing for Ed. And in a strange way, it was always almost like, and I hate the synchronicity thing when it's overused, but it was almost like that interview wasn't supposed to be aired. It was just supposed to kind of drift off into the ether in the same way that one of the things Ed said to me in that interview that really touched me and will stay with me for a long time is at the end, and this sounds kind of crass, but you know, it's kind of a skeptico kind of thing. I said, regrets i mean don't you don't you ever think god i wasted 30 years of my life and uh and then got quiet and he goes you know i don't think of it that way and he said what i try and focus on now is the smaller things and being smaller and not worrying about you know what not only not worrying about the big things but not worrying about being big worrying about being small and I just really thought that just touched me because it's been something that I guess I've been thinking about and, and kind of I, not it, wrestling with. And, uh, and I'll always remember that. I'll always remember that moment with Ed that we shared in that interview. And if I can just throw in one other thing, because this really struck me as well is when I was preparing for the interview with Ed, I was listening to other interviews that he had done. I knew he was on the farm, but I wanted to find, find something else, you know? So I found an interview that he had done with some second-gen Moonies, Unification Church members. 
and uh, the compassion that he had, the ability to connect with these people who most of us would probably dismiss or think are totally uh, kooky. And again, these are our second generation, which you have to have a special empathy for them because they were born into it. You know, just like if you're born into being Catholic, Jewish, whatever, they're born into being Moonies, and they're really wrestling with it. And his ability to tell his story, be in his space of having left and having all those feelings that he has and all those, all that new information that he's gained and still be there for those people in a way that you could tell he was really connecting with them and they were appreciating it. I think, I think that just emphasizes or, or you know, doubles down on, on what you saw in Ed and I saw it too. And I think his passing, I, I, I didn't know, you know, about his health situation or anything like that, but um, it was it, it was awesome encountering him uh, the way that I did and uh, saying goodbye to him without ever really saying goodbye, but saying goodbye by connecting on some really cool content that touched at least one person because it really touched me it, it impacted me I, I was telling everybody i was telling my wife i was telling everybody after the interview you know how fantastic it was it's kind of a perfect ending if i was going to write the story yeah and um also to kind of add on like an odd synchronistic level too um i, I believe keith and i also spoke to um Ed on that same day. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it was like right after he had done the interview with you, Alex. And then I think he uh, spoke to Keith and then he finally spoke to me towards um, that evening. And that was uh, the last time that Keith and uh, I had actually spoken to Ed on the phone. Uh, we exchanged some texts and what have you. But uh, I find it kind of interesting. We all sort of had that moment with Ed uh, on that last uh, Monday, I think it was in September. Um, but yeah, Ed was, um, he was incredibly excited about the interview too. Um, I'm just wondering if you could remember any more details about it, Alex. I know he had kind of indicated it was uh, getting into almost his Philip K. Dickian worldview. That's, um, that's an element about Ed. I really wish people would have got more of a chance to know. I mean, he, he was really a very spiritual person and he had such a, a remarkable view in a lot of this stuff. Before you say that, I just want to say the last time I talked to him, he talked about his life as if he was living in a Philip K. Dick novel. He did, he did say that. Yeah, that said. <laughs> well, I think, you know, one of the things that, that Ed and I really connected on is this idea of just walking logically to the extended consciousness realms, which is whatever spirituality is to anybody, it exists outside of space and time. That's kind of scientific, if you will. And as soon as you get past materialistic science that says, oh, there is nothing outside of space and time. You are just, you know, you're just in this meat suit here kind of thing. Ed was totally past that. One of the things he, you know, was keen to mention because he knew it was an interest to me, it was like, ET has to be considered in this. It just has to have a seat at the table because the evidence is just too overwhelming that there is this in, in this extended consciousness realm there is this aspect that people are connecting with that they identify as et so no matter what you think about that that's uh, data that you have to incorporate but i, I think 
what to me is like the the beauty of the the farm is that it kind of just drills into the parapolitical at a level that you just you just don't get you know what i mean it's just data 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 but what ed and i you know were more into is okay let's climb on top of the data and see what it really might mean on this kind of spiritual level because again extended consciousness outside of space and time now spirituality is on the table now is there a hierarchy to consciousness is if there's a hierarchy to consciousness that starts sounding a lot like god you know where where are the where are all the things that we hear about and know about in those extended realms i think it i think ed saw the connection to the parapolitical and you know so the question about the question about the cults, right? Whether it's the Moonies or uh, the Catholic Church or any other, you know, uh, David Koresh, you know, the question really isn't what they do; it's are they evil? You know, is there some, is there an extra element to that that we are not putting on the table that is outside of space and time, but is finding a way into our world? And Ed was totally engaged in that kind of uh, discussion with me, and that's what that's what really kind of excited me. And then, if I could, I, I just one more point, and then I'm, I want I'm, I'm dying to hear what everybody else learned we'll and experienced with him. And that's that. You know, when I hit Ed with that, you know, wasting thirty years of your life, you know, his answer. And this just stays with me. Is man, I've wasted thirty fucking years of my life. I didn't do it all in one stretch at the Unification Church. I did it five minutes here, ten minutes there, one week there, one year here. But no, he he he, his his empathy, his ability to kind of see beyond, you know, see beyond being an ex cult member. You know, I wasn't at the end. I wasn't interviewing someone who was an ex cult member. That didn't have anything to do with it. I was just interviewing somebody who had this amazing life experience that had brought him to a point that was very similar to mine. And uh, awesome, awesomeness. Yeah, and I mean, um, you know, Ed and I never really uh, implicitly addressed it, but um, you know, I think uh, part of the reason why we had both gravitated to the cults and sort of their role in, you know, the quote unquote deep state or whatever you want to call it was the, you know, kind of this aspect of spiritual warfare that almost plays into it. And yeah, I mean, I totally agree, Alex. I think Ed, you know, was able to step back and see the broader implications of a lot of the things that we were looking at, um, you know, which was a very important part about it. And again, it's, um, it was a bit of a regret that I, he never really got a chance to get into that in any of his interviews. Uh, he really did have, uh, you know, some great ideals on all those fronts. Well, let's see here. All right, um, Wade, uh, you knew Ed uh, since at least, I believe, the late 1970s. So uh, why don't you tell us a bit about how you first encountered Mr. Kaufman? Well, Ed and I were young recruits. I mean, I, I joined when I was 17. Ed was, when I met Ed, he was like 21. So like a brother. Uh, almost immediately when people are recruited into cults, they usually end up 
feeding the streets fundraising. And uh, that's what we did for the first couple of years. And uh, then we drifted apart. He went to the business aspect. I went into the recruiting, which was a no-go. Moon was already in jail at that point on uh, tax charges. So, you know, it was like wearing a dunce hat or, you know, putting a sign on your shirt, back of your shirt, kick me hard. So I started moving in a different direction. And uh, at that point, I was living in New York. Uh, my hand picked wife, Japanese wife, uh, Moon hitched me up with a wife. Um, we hit it off um, and we decided that uh, we were going to have a family. So uh, my priorities changed immediately at that point and then uh, um, gradually found my way or worked my way out of the church. Um, I met Ed a couple times in New York uh, and he was having difficulties with his marriages. Uh, he went through two marriages. Um, neither one was successful. I mean, my last conversation with him was uh, probably two weeks ago. Yeah, it was two weeks ago today. And I was just telling him, you know, don't give up. You know, you'll meet a nice lady. But um, he always, you know, I mean, he always told me, he had he had a, a fatalistic streak about his health and you tend not to take it seriously i mean i told him well we're all depressed you know we just we just you know suck it up we'll deal with it but um he didn't live a really good life he lived a, a kind of a nomadic life so he he had an unusual job situation uh where he could work doing sales at art shows on the weekends. And then he had five days to kick back and actually waste time, but he didn't. He, uh, he uh, from the get-go, uh, when he actually left the church, he dove deep into the research. He wanted to know who Moon was. He wanted to find out who these people were. And um, he wanted to find out exactly what the, um, why he had wasted 30 years of his life. And uh, the last time, I, uh, the last my, we separated for about maybe 10 or 15 years. And then I re-encountered him in Seattle around 2010. We went out for dinner. We had a few beers. We, we talked, I told him, I explained to him uh, the intersection between cults and intelligence. And he didn't really get it at that point. Um, and I turned him on to Robert Perry's work. And I gave him a few other books. Um, and we parted company for about a year. And then he called me up out of the blue in tears because he had encountered uh, Nan Suk Hong's book, who was the, the wife of uh, Reverend Moon's number one son, suffered horrific abuse, had five children with this guy, and finally escaped the compound and wrote a book about her experience. And Ed was just in shock over that. And then he was able to emotionally disconnect from the church. Uh, he didn't break all the relationships. He, he kept the relationships because he was actively employed by the church. So he picked up the name, the moniker Don Diligent, 
and he dove deep and he did some amazing research. He opened my eyes. Uh, he dug up the connection between Yangun Kim and MRA. Um, he, uh, uh, it's just uh, the amazing connections that he dug because he was able to actually go through the church archives and corroborate the information, the dates, the people with secular sources, including uh, freedom of information releases by the FBI and the CIA. So that was, that was like, that was a shock for me because in my experience in the church, I saw things, I saw things going on like uh, during Iran-Contra in that time because I was working in seafood in the South and I couldn't put it together. But uh, once we started lining up all the dots, it became obvious to me that uh, Moon was a real, a real um, nasty bit of work. And uh, I, you know, so my relationship with Ed was like, I, I, um, you know, I do HVAC work. I have a job. I raised three children. Now I have grandchildren. But you don't have time to do research. You don't have time to even think about the deeper implications of, uh, you know, your purpose of life and all those things. But Ed had plenty of time. He spent a lot of time at Starbucks and McDonald's using their uh, free Wi-Fi. But he ended up eating and drinking endless cups of coffee there, which probably didn't help with his health. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> That's a lot of information. Oh, no, that was great, uh, Wade. That okay. was great. Yeah, and if you're the guy, Wade, if you're the guy that turned him on to Robert Perry, then you did the world a favor. Oh, well, he, he took that and ran with it. I yeah. mean, Perry, Perry didn't, doesn't have the insights that we do as members of the church. He, he didn't have the insight that we do uh, 30 years later after most of his best work right right took place but um those old 1980s parapolitical researchers and publishers and, and journalists that were doing this stuff while the iron was hot yeah and moon was at the height of its power um even without um i mean th those guys were basically journalists right i mean they, they didn't have the benefit of historical hindsight but what they did was laid out the breadcrumbs for people 30 years later oh yeah they to were take real. what they did yeah and build on it you know and and ed definitely did so yeah, yeah. yeah. uh wade out of curiosity uh were you in winchester with ed when he was working at the mall there winchester virginia no no uh, i gotta throw that out there that was another one of just the absolute craziest uh synchronicities i had with ed kaufman um I was actually born in a place called Winchester, Virginia, uh, which is about oh, an hour and a half or so from D.C., depending upon the time of day and the traffic. Uh, it's right along the border with West Virginia. And um, anyway, my I grew up, I spent my childhood in West Virginia, but we were not that far from Winchester. And uh, we would frequently go in uh, to the city and go to the Apple Blossom Mall. Uh, I want to say about every other weekend. 
And strangely, I believe Ed was working a stand in Winchester uh, at the Apple Blossom Mall around uh, 1988 or so. So there's actually Whoa. a very strong possibility that I might have uh, walked past uh, Ed Kaufman as a young child at some point. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of another uh, strange thing with Ed, how I feel so, to some extent rather star-crossed uh, with him. Uh, Wade, uh, I'm curious, uh, was it you or was it uh, Ed who had discovered uh, my blog initially? Oh, I, I ran across your blog because you were doing... You were doing research on, um, I can't remember the name, but it's an offshoot of Scientology. Um, oh, the Process uh, Church, you mean? The Process Church, okay. And I left a comment because uh, Ed had dug up, uh, in the church archives, he had dug up an announcement that uh, a member of the Process Church had actually stumbled into the Unification Church. That was back in uh, probably around 68. 67 or 68. And I don't remember that one coming up. That's amazing. Please, yeah, please continue. <laughs> we, well, we did a deep dive on the process church and that's another political cult. I mean, all cults are political, but um, the process church were just seemed to show up at uh, really critical, critical times in, in, in our nation's history including um, the assassination of uh, Robert F. Kennedy, and um, they were uh, participants in, or they were in the periphery of uh, the Charles Manson show, or, or uh, you know, public event. So yeah, the process, they, go oh ahead. Yeah, they actually kind of turn up later, too, with some of those fundamentalist Mormon sects that we were uh, talking about. Uh, yeah, the Best Friends Animal Society set up in Kanab, uh, Utah, which is right there at the border, and uh, yeah. about 40 minutes, I think, from Colorado City, which was the compound uh, that the fundamentalist uh, Church of Latter-day Saints runs. That's the uh, cult that Warren Jeffs uh, headed, the uh, glorious Warren Jeffs, who's uh, currently serving a life sentence plus uh, 20 years for uh, raping a 12-year-old. <laughs> Great yep. guy. I, I uh, got gas in my car right across the street from that spot in Kanab on my way home from a trip to Salt Lake City this summer. Oh, really? Yeah. And the Process Church, we should add that uh, some of Whitley Strieber's missing time, so to speak, uh, took place while he was hanging out with those guys in, I believe, London, which is talked about in Jason Horsley's book, Prisoner of Infinity. But I digress. Certainly. Yeah, the the Mormons are um, somebody's going to have to do a deep dive into the Mormons because uh, the, there, there's a lot of synchronicity. Uh, anyway, there's a lot of uh, interesting information about Joseph Smith that the public isn't aware of. I mean, he was a high level Mason. Um, he actually one of his 33 wives actually turned out. Uh, was the widow of Captain Morgan. I don't know how that, uh, how that was arranged. But, yeah, no, um, from the Morgan affair. Yeah, yeah, I know what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. No, yeah. don't and, worry, Wade. I'm, the... I'm working on a deep dive into the Mormon. Are you? Yeah, it's yeah. coming. It might be a while, but it's coming, Wade. I promise you that. <laughs> I brought it up with Ed, but Ed wouldn't hear it. I mean, his grandfather apparently was a lifelong Mason. So he, he didn't want to, 
he didn't want to take that deep dive. But I, I consider the Freemasons to be the most successful cult in history to date, at least in, you know, from our recent memory. <laughs> Can't really argue with that too much. Yeah. Um, okay, so and then also from what I remember, it was Ed who had asked you to reach out to me initially or because uh, I know you were the one who had contacted me first but uh, from what Ed had told me he was the one who had asked you to contact me I'm not sure I mean Ed didn't have any trouble reaching out to people I mean he would just call people up he would show up and, and knock on people's doors I mean uh, I was uh, uh, kind of amazed at his persistence too but um, I think I basically uh I basically just uh, introduced him in a comment, and then he took it from there. I think he emailed you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm certainly glad that that uh, happened. Can't remember. Well, yeah. do you have anything else you want to add about uh, Ed Wade? Well, I got a call from Ed two days ago. <laughs> it turns out it was Lucy. It was kind of a shock. But uh, Lucy's kind of broken up. Um, they've been estranged for, gosh, even before, even before I met him and he fell out of the church. But uh, she lives in Panama with her adopted son, who's a teenager now. And she's uh, taken this pretty hard. So uh, any and all financial help that you can slide their way through their GoFundMe would probably be most welcome. Amen to that. I chipped in a little bit. Anybody that hears this, they're probably going to hear it too late. But yeah, there was a comment from somebody that was on Twitter that it said, you know, she had retweeted the how well do you know your moon Twitter account had advertised the GoFundMe and this person whose name I don't recall right now was a handle anyway. It said how angry she was that, uh, you know, ex Moonies have to bury themselves in spite of the largesse of the cult. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's not, not like they don't have the money. Right. But, uh, it's, it was an honor to throw a few bones at it. You know, what can I say? Yeah, I mean, she's still a, a member. She's actually a member of the offshoot, uh, Sean Moon's, um, the AR-15 cult in Pennsylvania. Oh, we don't want to uh, get uh, too deep into the cult of the machine but, gun. Um, I don't know how, that's just an aside. They're <laughs> still members. The question is uh, that Alex raised earlier is that how in the hell do you stay in the cult for 30 years? Well, for most people, they don't know they're in a cult until it's, you know, too late or they're married into the cult or, I mean, you could, you could make that pitch to Warren Jeff's crowd because uh, he actually married those 12 year old girls. Well, that he did. Uh, and some of his wives apparently watched him deflower them as well. Um, so they had that, you know, special bonding experience that few people could ever go through uh, to boot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was David Koresh's gig too. I mean, uh, yeah. he was going to marry a thousand, thousand little girls and got the parents to say, "Hey, your twelve-year-old daughter, we got a great deal for. Her. Marry me." Oh yeah. Well, that's that's another political aspect of cults because uh, 
it's not too hard to figure out the cult leader and their motivation, but the, the first and second tier of the leadership underneath them are, that's really, that's, uh, there's something weird going on there. We got to dig into that. I mean, it seems like the family element is another factor as well. I mean, I know, you know, looking at the FLDS, Warren Jeff's cult, I mean, nominally, you know, you just look at this and you're just like, how can these people continue to be in this? I mean, even after it's well known about what a monster he is, but it's like if they leave it in a lot of cases, they have nothing, you know, they're literally like out on the streets with just the clothes on their backs. And, you know, they may never even be able to talk to their family again because they break all contact with them. Yeah, uh, I mean that's you know that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to overcome. Well, that's that's a, the other thing about these narcissistic cult leaders because they always end up stiffing their people, and uh, um, a lot of these people end up like even Moon's cohorts ended up penniless, broken family. Um, if I if I may weigh in on something, this is uh, Clay Vandiver here. Oh, go for it. Um, it. There was a professor I had in college who was wonderful. Um, I can't remember his name. He's a World War II professor, but he talked about the atomization of Germany and, and why people looked up to Hitler so much. And I think you see that in these cults. And that was there was an atomization that you looked only to the leader to solve all of your problems. And there's a huge cognitive dissonance between everything else that's going on so much so that to acknowledge them is almost fracturous to your mind. And I think that's how these leaders operate is they fracture people so much that the only refuge people see is in these narcissistic leaders who push every button the right way, uh, please when they need to please, punish when they need to punish to, to keep people focused on them as their source of kind of, uh, of, of everything and kind of the, this, create this otherworldly devotion that, that allows them to escape from these fracturous problems. And I thought that was a wonderful analogy because that really spoke to me uh, when I when I heard him talk about that. So, uh, I just want to wait. You, you know, it, can, can I just riff off that for a second? Because yeah, I, I, I think you're really getting to something, Clay, with, with what you're saying. And <clears throat> what I would do is broaden it out a little bit and just say the modern condition and the social and technological and economic upheavals that have all come in with modern times create the conditions um, whereby people are suffering from anomie or, um, you know, being isolated and fractured and cut off from the past, their own past, their own pre-modern past. And, um, the trauma of the wars of the last century, World War One, World War Two, the Korean War, you know, they just are fracking the mass consciousness of millions and millions of people. And the apocalypse that was the first, you know, 50 years of the 20th century just left lost generation after lost generation. And I think at some point the psychological warfare people the macarthur boys if you want to call it that but it's by no means limited 
uh, to them, you know, figured out like, well, um, people are going to be lost. They're going to be looking for answers. And if we can provide them, then we're going to, we're going to be able to shepherd, you know, those people. Um, yeah. So no, yeah, that's, that's a, a wonderful tra- point. Trauma you don't, you don't actually have to have a cult leader in and of itself be the one to do the fracturing. It's just the modern condition just does that automatically. So it's just a matter of, well, we need a bucket to catch this rain of disaffected, alienated people. And I think the Unification Church definitely um, played that role in a way that Westerners can probably not easily understand uh, when it came to East Asia, which was deeply, deeply traumatized. Yeah, um, you have to remember that millions, they scores the, of millions of people just just died, you know, in a 50 year period. You were saying recluse. Well, yeah, you also I mean, on top of that, there was the Japanese occupation. I mean, of the Koreas and a lot of other you know things like that, that had even predated the Second World War. I mean, really, I think since what about the 1870s, 1880s or something like that? I mean, Asia had just been you know really devastated by a series of wars uh, driven by the rising Japanese Empire. But yeah, I mean, that, that's a fantastic point, Keith. And, you know, this is, you know, again, kind of going into Ed's research and, you know, aspects of it that were so groundbreaking that we're hopefully going to get into in the future. Uh, Ed had really looked at Korea as kind of a crucial point where, um, you know, the, uh, the national security state really started to look at these cults and how they could be used. And I mean, I think that kind of coincides with what you were saying, because I mean, you know, this is coming uh, at a time where we had the First World War, the Second World War, and then Korea, and these conflicts were just brutal. Uh, I think really in a way that we can't even totally understand today. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, I think been a deliberate- Yeah, I, I just don't think we have a good handle on how to even, I, I'll just say, I don't have any conceptualization of how it must've been for people you know, in the immediate aftermath or during World War II or the Korean War or any of that, and just how traumatized millions and millions of people were that were left. Their families were dead. Their dads were dead. Their moms were pressed into services, comfort women, you know, just, just, uh, it's like shaking up the kaleidoscope, right? Well, Korea. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Korea, Korea was devastated. Korea was devastated in the Korean War and divided up. And that was a political decision. Yeah. And um, uh, Moon was a uh, uh, world-class, um, he was a world-class confidence man, trickster. And he actually started out as a teenager. He was a collaborator with the Japanese. I think he was trained by the Kempentai to spy in his own people. That's the only explanation I could come up with, with because he's kind of bombastic and he would relate anecdotal information from, from his uh, early years. And the way you can explain for him traipsing around Tokyo during World War II was that he had to have been an asset. And I met with a Japanese I, minister who was a... Uh, Oh, no, you were saying, I'm sorry. Well, I met, I met with a, a Japanese minister who's a deprogrammer in, uh, in Japan when I went over there with my wife about five or six years ago, and he confirmed that for me. The Japanese people, they know 
that and the Korean people know that Moon was a collaborator with the Japanese up until they lost the war, and then he switched sides. One of the things that um, Don Diligent, who I'm going to call Don Diligent just because it's the coolest name ever, and it's very accurate. Um, he, uh, to, to his dying day, to the last time I talked to him, the, the biggest nut he wanted to crack was really tracing the earliest, earliest, earliest history of Moon doing exactly what you said, Mr. Frivolous, Wade. Um, well, that's, when, that's when, did, when did that relationship a... begin? Go ahead. Well, the, 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 sorry, we can't, we're hitting against a cultural barrier. I mean, the Japanese are very low key, but they're the money bags behind this whole operation. Yeah. Three key people, uh, Kishi, and you covered this, Kishi, Sasakawa, and Kodama were released. I mean, they should have been hung, but they were released by the CIA and put into service immediately. Kishi became the uh, prime minister of Japan. And Moon knew these guys. He actually hooked up with them in the early 60s again. And then it took off from there. So the Japanese figure prominently, the Japanese fascists figure prominently in the, the unification church phenomena. Yeah. But you can't dig that information out. Yeah, that is... Might get a clue to it if you could read Japanese and or Korean and get into some of those archives, such as whatever exists over there. But uh, that well, was something uh, that was the Moby Dick for Don Diligent was how yeah. early did that relationship go? When did it actually start? You know, and he when, when did Moon get made as the deep state guy that he would become? That was something Don was after to his dying day, honestly. Yeah, I mean, he well, was it's no him. secret. It's no secret that these cult leaders go looking for those type of relationships in order to protect their operation. But um, but Moon was implicated with a sexual scandal and actually imprisoned over it, bigamy, in South Korea. And I think that may have been the starting point where he started collaborating with these people. I mean the CIA. Well, all right, uh, Clay, you're up now, sir. Uh, so uh, why don't you tell us a bit about your thoughts on Ed Kaufman, the man? Uh, sh sure. So thanks, Recluse. Um, so yeah, I, I first met Ed uh, this uh, past April when we had started talking about doing the uh, documentary TV series. And from day one, I was just blown away by this guy. And let me, let me just, let me try to say it best this way. Um, in college, some friends of mine were having a debate over whether translating like from a, an ancient text or an ancient poem, like for Beowulf or something like that, was an art form. And I remember there being some disagreements. It was one of the better conversations we had. It was very intellectual and very lofty. And I, you know, I, it, it got into some territory that was a bit, you know, weird, but it was a really wonderful conversation. And I bring that up because I think there's another art form out there that people don't realize. And that is the art form of the true researcher. And to me, there's three types of historians. 
and researchers. There's the number one, there's the, um, there's the fact spouter, right? There's the guy who talks about what kind of buttons an army wore in the civil war, or what kind of rifles they used or how many regiments was in this area. And that falls on deaf ears to this crowd. And it falls on deaf ears to most people who follow parapolitical research like we do. And for good reason, because anybody can go to any library and look that information up and it's not gonna change your understanding of history. And the second type of research that there is, is the historian who asks provocative questions. And I would put you know, great his, um, researchers and, and academics like Jared Diamond who wrote Guns, Germs and Steel in this category. Um, and I would put others in that category as well. Um, I, I'm trying to see names that come to mind. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to do a bad job because I'm not going to think of the right names, but I'd say like somebody like Jaron Diamond, some kind of academics who ask probing questions. And that, that's great. And I, I think that does a lot for our understanding of history. But to me, Ed fit into the third category. <clears throat> And that was the researcher that asks, okay, what is actually going on here? What is actually happening here outside of the veneer of history of what we're told in the news of what any other provoking questions that journalists like Bob Woodward and Bernstein would have asked about Watergate. Like the question Ed would have asked is, well, you know, why did, why did Nixon put himself in this situation? Why, why did he, you know, why was it so obviously set up to where the Watergate people were arrested? You know, Ed asked the deeper questions. Sorry, that is a bit of a bad example, but um, Ed, Ed is somebody that would never take a story at face value and he would ask questions that are far beyond probing questions. Like when, when him and I started talking about Moon, uh, he, he, would, he, he asked the question, okay, so when do, you, when do you think that Moon became an agent? I said, well, I found his story about when he was you know, 18 years old and he studied at the Electrical engineering university in Japan, very suspicious. And I thought that I wondered what he was doing during the day. And I thought that he was probably working with Japanese intelligence. And Ed took it to a level that just blew my mind. And he talked about the Jesus church in Korea. And he said, what if Moon was an agent from the time that he was in high school? And then I, I was like, my mind was blown. And we went in a two hour conversation that I'll never forget. And the facts that Ed relayed were so outside of even what you guys talked about on the Wackle series. And when I say outside, I mean so much more in depth and deep, taking a deep dive into and immersing himself into almost the soul of Moon. And it's that kind of research that Ed Kaufman did that few others did. And uh, people in this room have done that research, of course, and it's wonderful to be among you guys. You guys are uh, researchers par excellence and scholars of a, a whole different order. And that's what really uh, I, I'd like to celebrate about Ed's legacy is just his otherworldly ability to ask 
what is going on here? Like, um, for instance, uh, why is Klaus Barbie having a wedding in Bolivia where one of the top attendees is a Mooney and she comes from one of the wealthiest families in America? And the, the cover up was that, well, oh, it wasn't really Klaus Barbie. It was some the, the, uh, who is, by the way, the head of the Bolivian secret police, which most people do not know to this day. And what was one of the most important historical facts of the last 60 years without question. And, and he, 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 he would ask, he would ask those deeper questions. Like, what is this? Not, not, not that Klaus Barbie was, was involved in a coup or involved in the cocaine trade, which he probably was, but that why is he having a wedding where the scion, one of the scions of this American family is there as a maid of, is there as essentially a maid of honor. And it was those type of questions that really probed what was going on here. You know, Ed exposing the fact that the FBI said that uh, the, the moon organization financed 85% of Wackle and that the loose figure that he put on it was somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion dollars. And he asks where they get the money. And he points to the golden Lily trust, which is the only logical source to raise that kind of money outside of the CIA, where it would have never been found out in a congressional hearing. And and it is those type of questions that that I want to celebrate that, that Ed would ask that puts him in that third tier of research. And it, it's just, you know, I only got to know Ed, really got to know him as what I would consider a dear friend in the past two months. And guys, I got to tell you, in those two months, and I told Keith this, and I, I've told you this recluse, I feel like I knew him for 20 years. I, I really did. And I don't say that lightly. I've never said that about anybody before, but I say that about Ed. And the conversations that we would have would, I would be like, okay, I'm going to be on the phone with Ed for 20 minutes. I got to tell him I got to go because I have this call I got to take and I'm not trying to be rude. 20 minutes in the call, I'd be texting my, my friend who I was supposed to be on the call with for my, my business. And I'd be like, hey, I got to push this call, man. I'm on, a, I'm on a really important call. I'm sorry. Can we do the call in an hour? And they say again in an hour, okay, I'm sorry. We got to do this tomorrow. I'd be on the phone with Ed for two and a half hours. And I would just be listening the whole time. I, I would get a few questions in here and there, but it's, it's indescribable, the, the knowledge in this man's brain. When you hear him articulate his knowledge as only he can, his work, I would say, is almost unparalleled. And I want, to, I want to be one of the people here to say tonight on the record that Ed Kaufman is one of the most important historical voices of the last 60 years in America and I, in the world, in the world, not just America, especially Latin America and South America, um, even though his work is still being digested and processed. But his work, having seen it myself, is, is otherworldly on the scale of that third tier of research. And uh, I, I am so honored to know him as a history major. He made me feel like an amateur. Uh, he made me feel like I was playing t-ball and he was Derek Jeter hitting home runs 
all day long and I was just watching him in true amazement. Um, and uh, the thing about Ed, I'll, I'll end just my, my, my portion of the story here and I hope to contribute more throughout this episode, but I'll end by saying this, this is the most wonderful thing about Ed. I said, Ed, you know, we're trying to do a TV show here. Can you please just condense a timeline of moon and the moon organization up until now in like a five page document, just with bullet points. Can you please do that? And he goes, okay, okay. So here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to send you my research document and I need you to go through it. And then you, you tell me what you need. And then I'll put it in a bullet point. I get the email and his research document is no less than 128 pages. And I'm reading it and I'm like, I'm like, Ed, uh, you know, I want, I was hoping there'd be specific dates in here that, so that I could parse through it and put it in bullet point form. But then after that, I realized the magic of it. Ed's research can't be put in bullet points because it, it, it shouldn't be put in bullet points. It is so much bigger than that. And when I was going through there, I'm still pouring through this research. It, it is, it's incredible, the depth of it. And I couldn't imagine putting that into bullet points. I, I, and obviously, you know, we're still going to try to condense it for our purposes and everything, but it was the most wonderful tome of research that, uh, that I've read to this day. Um, outside you're talking about the opus yes i am yes i am the opus yes he called it the opus he he sent it to me too yep and when you read it it's like don diligent talking the exclamation marks and just the right spots you can almost hear him coughing and saying excuse me as he did in our conversations yeah it reads in his voice. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I know what you're talking about. I've read the opus. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And uh, that's a wonderful point you bring up in that it had his voice in it. It had his artful prose that I just loved. And it had, it had all caps when there needed to be all caps. It had three question marks when there needed to be three question marks. Uh, especially when he was highlighting some of Moon's speeches and in Ed at one of Ed's series that I loved and that I think he's made a very convincing case of is that Moon revealed himself in his speeches. And I can't even fathom how much material Ed would have had to gone through to, to find those speeches and highlight what he did. But my gosh, when I read those speeches, the, the way he highlighted it, I, I couldn't, take it any other way. And Keith, it had, as you know, Ed's artful comments. And he would say stuff like, oh, really, Moon? And, you know, in his own way, and you can probably articulate it a little better than I can, but it was just wonderful to see it as something much more than just this dry research document. It, it had his soul in it, and it was wonderful to see. It was, without a doubt, very, very personal for him. Yeah, he had another persona in the ex Mooney blogs, and he didn't create it. They gave it to him. It's called Mr. Moon Critic. And a lot of his submissions to the blogs was in that form, like a conversation between him and Moon. Like he's some kind of prosecuting attorney or something. 
Yeah, for like the last seven years. Right. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting thing to point out about Ed, uh, you know, for all of his appearances on here, he really uh, meticulously kind of scripted this stuff out. Um, but, you know, as you guys are saying, I mean, he had a really wonderful conversational style of writing, uh, which translated uh, really well uh, when he brought it to the podcasts. And, um, you know, he was voluminous too, and just all of the material he uh, put together and would uh, pass on to us. Uh, Gosh, you know, certainly I was probably the uh, recipient of uh, hundreds of emails from uh, Ed over the years. Um, I'm sure Keith uh, probably received quite a few as well. Um, you know, all of these little gems, I'm uh, quite happy that I uh, still have all of them. And, uh, you know, eventually we're hoping to compile some of these and put them together for an archive because, um, you know, thankfully, Don did relieve a, uh, a considerable research trail uh, and a lot of invaluable information in many of these emails and some of the other documents that, uh, you know, all of us here were uh, blessed to receive from him over the years. Um, well, Clay, did you uh, have anything else that you wanted to add about uh, Ed, sir? Um, just, just, um, uh, there... I, I just just that that what I was leaving with you guys is that he was one of the one of the greatest researchers. I, I really do believe that of the last sixty years, and uh, I'm I'm blessed to have known him. And uh, I'll end by saying that he asked me, or we were talking about Don Diligent and what I thought it meant, and I said that sounds like the name of a comic book superhero. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. I think Ed was a little bit of a superhero in a way. And I think the name Don Diligent really fit him, fit him well. Yeah, uh, I mean, with the whole thing with the persona, and I mean, that's uh, really is, I think, very accurate. Um, you know, I think as Wade had kind of alluded to earlier, um, you know, when he was uh, working, uh, even after he had left the church, it was uh, the business that was affiliated with the Unification Church. So, um, yeah, I mean, he really did uh, almost have to act uh, like Clark Kent or something like that uh, during the day. And then he uh, would break out the uh, Don Diligent persona in his time away um, yeah, and would do his uh, research. So uh, that's another you know, kind of intriguing aspect of Ed's personality absolutely well uh keith uh why don't we get to you here so sir uh why don't you tell us a bit about ed kaufman the man all right um the last time i talked to him uh i guess was <clears throat> two weeks ago tomorrow two Mondays ago and uh, man, it's, it's hard. It, it, let me back up. He kind of, I feel like he stuck his hand in a light socket when he hooked up with us and we did this wackle series, but all the electricity went from Don diligent into the light socket, not the other way around. And when it was done, there wasn't much of Don Diligent left and he lit the fuse on his own passing in doing that series with us. And that's a fucked up thing to say. Uh, I don't know if I'm really right about that, but he had a lot of stuff to get off his chest and he got it off his chest with us doing that series. 
And if you listen to the Wackle series, if you listen to the last uh, 15 minutes or so of the Moral Rearmament uh, podcast that we did, he, he really bared his soul in the last like 20 minutes of that podcast talking about cult techniques, talking about having given up decades of his life for what he called, and I quote, a fascist political cult. And it weighed on his soul in a big, big way. He was a, if you listen to the other interviews that he did, I can't remember the name of the podcast right now, but Frank Frivolous earlier in this episode here talked about uh, him going on to that pod with those uh, second generation Mooney guys and talking to them on their level, using acronyms that I didn't understand inside baseball stuff, you know, and really relating to them. Um, and being uh, a really uh, a big uh, a rock star in these mobile fundraising teams, he called them MFTs. I guess that's like Mooney jargon or whatever. Apparently, he was really good with that, and he sold peanut brittle and flowers and whatever else the Mooney sold in the seventies and eighties. And he knew, you know, later in life, that that money went to to what to propping up Moon Media properties like the Washington times or new York, New York, uh, review of the news or whatever the, you know, the Michael Waters newspaper in the seventies or, you know, putting bullets in the clips of these Latin American death squads from Causa in the eighties or just lining moon's bank account or just whatever it's blood money. It's blood money. Okay. He raised a lot of money some of which probably went to kill some people like Bernie Kratz or whatever in like Guatemala and El Salvador in the eighties. And it killed him. It took a toll on his soul. And when he left the church had what he called his awakening around 2015, that's when he turned to Don diligent and started diligently researching you know, the background, the real story about this so-called second coming of Jesus that he'd followed for half of his life. And he wasn't a young man. He was 63, 64 when he passed a couple of weeks ago. Half of his life, decades, three decades and change. And it weighed on him so hard. And his efforts, you know, and all his research that he did was his attempt to try to tip the scales back um, to redeem himself for like literally his own salvation, literally to like bring the scales back to equilibrium, maybe go to heaven or whatever, you know, instead of hell and, and to get that blood off of his soul. And so by the time he got to do that wackle series with us, the energy went from Don Diligent into the light socket because he finally found uh, an outlet to to re to redeem himself. And it sounds so grandiose and and just dumb, but I think that's what it was for him. And um, and by the time he was done he had taken a lot of his own remaining life force or whatever and spent it 
And he still didn't stop after that. He had hopes for uh, making a documentary series like Clay had talked about. Frank Frivolous, you, when the last time I talked to him, I was talking to him about whether or not he should go ahead and do this documentary series. The thing that he was worried about was how his son, Jacob, who I have a son named Jacob. It's it's fucking crazy. But, you know, he was worried about how much it might sway his son one way or the other into joining the cult or not joining the church, whatever church is just cult plus time. So, sure, we can call it a church now, I guess, in modern timescales. And he was worried about whether or not that might sway his son one way or the other. And I have teenage boys of my own and I can't get them to shower or clean their rooms or, you know, what are they going to do with their lives? I have no control over any of that. (laughs) And I feel it. I'm about to be father emeritus at this point. And that's the way like that it should be, you know, Um, they get older and you really don't have a say in what they do in their own lives. And that's, if you're doing it right, that's going to just be a thing because that's how it is. They're going to have their own lives. So I talked to him about that the last couple times I talked to him. And you really don't have a say in what your son does. But you do have a say in your own destiny. And your buddy Frank, he said to me that Frank Frivolous had said to him that it was his destiny probably to go ahead and do this thing. And... So I talked to him about that the last time I talked to him, the last time or two that I talked to him. But that weighed on him a whole lot. Um, that that decision making about whether whether he should you know go forward with that or not. And it's one thing Don always told me, because you know everybody's talked about how he would send a bunch of emails and a bunch of Skype messages and text messages, some of which were answered by all of us. And some of which were not because we've all got things going on. And like, like you said, Wade, uh, he had a lot of time on his hands that maybe some of us don't have, right? You know, and I would say, well, I'm doing this thing with my kids or I'm doing this thing with my kids or whatever. And he would say, enjoy your time with your family, you know. And it hurt because I knew what he meant. I knew why he was saying it. He was saying it because that's something he didn't have. You know, that family separation thing that is like such a basic building block of like cultism where you separate people from their families or whatever. He had that going on his whole life or at least 30 years plus that he spent in the Moonies. But just because he left and had his awakening or whatever, none of that family separation stuff stopped for him. You know, he missed his his son. You know, he wished he could be there for him. He wished he could be there with him. And so he would tell me, enjoy your time with your family. And I, I took it as like a, it's not some small talk thing on his part. He was, he was not kidding, you know, don't take it for granted because you have that Keith and I don't, you know, (sighs) the last time I talked to him was two Mondays ago. And that's what I talked to him about. And he said, I can see it now. There's some Emmy type thing about some documentary and somebody maybe clay or whatever goes up in a bow tie 
and accepts the award for this TV series that he just basically planned on, I'm not going to be here for it. I already know. I'm not going to be around for this. <clears throat> and his wish was that there'd be a little thing on the screen behind whoever's accepting the award. You know, Don Diligent, I, I don't think, he, what he said, 1951 to 2022, I think is what he said, something like that. Like he was already just planning on like, I'm not going to be around for this, you know? And so that was his dream, not to be in the audience because he just planned out, because he just knew he didn't have that long to go, but just remember me, you know? And then that didn't get to happen. But what did get to happen was our World Anti-Communist League series. And that's where all the energy from Don Diligent went into the light socket. He was looking for a place to ground himself and to get all that stuff off his chest. And to the extent that all of us on the Wackle team got to play a little bit part in helping him get that energy out. Um, it's the uh, it's the honor of a lifetime to to have been that for him, to do that for him. So that means a lot. Um, when I'll move on. All of us, when we were doing this Wackle series, first of all, we're doing these you know, uh, these planning conversations where we're, we're, it really took a long time. It was kind of freaking agonizing, honestly, to be like, which episode is going to talk about what thing. And everybody, there was like four or five of us, me, you and Moss and John. And yeah. To like, put this in perspective, be- I mean, we would have these meetings that would go on sometimes for like two or three hours or something like that. And I would just I wish be- I recorded them. Yeah, I do too. I mean, it's in hindsight, I mean, there was probably just so much priceless stuff that was discussed. But exactly. yeah, I, I remember, though, just kind of struggling through all this because I'm here like with my little notepad trying to take notes and try to sketch out something for the episodes. And you guys are going like all over the place. And I always would kind of think of it. It was like having a, a box full of like kittens that I'm like trying to herd or shepherd, I think. Yeah, <laughs> well, especially with Don, because yeah, yeah. he had more uh to offer than your cup uh could hold right all the time and in one of those conversations i had sent him my history thesis thing you know and he'd read it and we're just start talking about walter judd who is not the most well-known you know figure today but back in the day he was pretty well-known china lobby guy and he just starts off the top of his head, just like, yeah, you know, his parents were missionaries in China and he's connected with this and that. And it was just stuff that blew my mind because, you know, I thought I knew something about that guy and what he was about. And here's Don Diligent, second time I'm ever talking to him, just dropping knowledge, man. And it's not like he's reading from notes. He's just, it's just off the top of his head, you know. Uh, there were there were so many things like that just before we even got started uh on the actual series proper that was like holy crap dude this guy knows his stuff and it wasn't just the moonies and it wasn't just wackle you know so i mean for example well before i get to that i'll just say all of us on the wackle team and yourself recluse you know we approach this stuff we do this research and we have the benefit of some kind of like uh, disinterested detachment from it. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Wow. 
uh, moon got up to this and that or so-and-so, whatever. But, you know, some of the last messages I got from him on Skype a couple of weeks ago or three weeks ago, he would, he would report on something that he had just found. And he, he would say, he would, he would send a link and a little message. And then he would say, I'm not having a good day, you know? And if all of us have talked to the guy on the phone, you could hear how animated and agitated he would get. Something that would just be like, ooh, cool. This is a little gem of historical research. I'll put that in my little pouch and maybe get to it later. When he would find something like that, he would have like a visceral bodily reaction to it that fucked him up. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like he, he, he it messed him up because yeah. it just... I mean, it, it, it just, just yeah, he had just so much passion for this. It's, it really can't be underestimated. I mean, you know, for those of you, I mean, I'm sure it came through to those of you in the audience who heard his podcast, but um, yeah, it, it was a totally different experience, though, to just have like a conversation with, Ed, yeah. you know, on the phone and just, you know, because like Keith is alluding to, I mean, this was you know, this wasn't just history for him. This was his life. Uh, and, you know, he could realize, you know, he could reflect on how some of these events that we were looking at as historians had affected him as a human being. And exactly. No, no. When, when, when we find something, we're like, oh, cool. That's, that's an interesting thing that's going into my book or whatever. When he would find it, he's like, oh shit, my peanut brittle sales funded that. That's on me. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it was on his soul. The, the different things he would find all the way up to the last few days of his life. What he called it uh, was gold panning. So, you know, he would go through massive tranches of documents in, in preparation, just as an example for our eighties, uh, the last two episodes, we wound up having to break them out into two because they went on too long. This dude read the entire 3000 and change page Iran-Contra depositions as his homework to prepare to give his spiel for those podcasts. I mean, like, who does that? You, you know what I mean? Like, he, he was... Yeah, please. Hey, and I'm sorry, because my phone, I have a... Sorry, I just got on, and my phone, when I called in, like, a minute ago, was on 20%. Now it's about to die, so you might lose me in any minute, but... But right, well, this Ed, is Moss Robinson, by the of, way. Yeah, this is Moss Robinson, by the way. So oh, Moss, yeah, sorry, yeah. I should introduce myself. But, yeah, yeah, so um, Moss, yeah, say your piece, man. So, but just to add onto the gold mining, you know, Ed, so the Ukrainian Weekly, the English language, main English language, Ukrainian-American newspaper, Ed went through every single issue from, I want to say maybe around when the Cold War started through the end, through like the 90s. Okay, this is a weekly newspaper. So like 40 years times maybe... 50 issues each each year so that's 2,000 issues and conservatively let's say they're each 10 pages each and more maybe up to 20 pages so that's but 20 to 40,000 pages that Ed dug through and um and at the end of the day it was all for maybe a handful of connections connections that probably no one else on earth would ever make um but to anyone else, you know, I don't think they would feel like that was worth it to go through this extreme, huge, you know, archive just to get us a, what at the end of the day is a, a small handful 
of tidbits and also knowing that, you know, Ed and I had some mutual persons of interest in the Ukrainian American community like Lev Dobryansky, who, you know, I know were mentioned multiple times in every issue. I'm sure, you know, Ed wasn't just looking for like a Korean name or something that caught his eye. I'm sure he was stopping every time he saw that. And it's just, I don't know. The main thing I would say about Ed is I feel like he's someone of, of a Herculean, almost superhuman uh, willpower, you know, it's, it's really, and I guess maybe it's something that comes with having been part of this cult for three and a half decades that he was no less dedicated to uh, this, this deep research that he was doing uh, as dedicated as he previously was to Moon. And it just, I don't know, it never ceases to amaze me because I use the same primary resources, English, uh, Ukrainian Weekly and this other, the ABN newsletter, but I've only looked at a tiny fraction of what Ed looked at. And like, that's the thing that I'm obsessed with. And for him, it's like a, it was like a, a side story and yet yeah he dug through i want to say thirty thousand pages and um, yet you who consider yourself to be a, an expert on the thing this guy like ran rings around you right i mean like not no disrespect to oh, you but yeah, like th yeah. this is this is what he was about right i forgot yeah. about him reading the entire freaking ukrainian weekly for like <laughs> 40 years worth of issues but that was uh, a week for don diligent right. next yeah, no, I can remember the first time I had introduced Moss and uh, Ed together and they had started going into the Ukrainian stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think either one of them had ever realized that there was another human being that knew the Ukrainian subject that well, other than like probably former OUNB or current OUNB members. Well, well, let, 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 let me keep going here. Um, well, just, well, Moss, just... do you have anything else you want to add? Because I know your oh, uh, phone uh, is not Oh, yeah, go ahead, sorry. but I might interject if I think of anything Please do, Moss. I'm glad you're on the call. It's nice to hear from you, buddy. Oh, well, also, you. too, um, Alex, I know you've got to run here soon, too. Uh, did you have anything that you wanted to add here? Uh, no, nothing in particular. It's 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 a great conversation, and I, I love hearing about, you know, Ed's, Ed's work and doing the kind of super great research that you guys do, which I have a lot of respect for. So I'm just listening. Awesome. All right, all right. All right, well, Keith, then take it, brother. So his first appearance on the farm was on our moral rearmament um, episode, right? And that was Don Diligent's first appearance on any podcast. And by the end of his life, which unfortunately was not long coming, we didn't know this at the time, you know, a year, year and a half later. By the end of it, he was appearing under his own name, Ed Kaufman. You know, he went on Steve Hassan's uh youtube channel or whatever as ed kaufman you know a few months before he died he went on to the second generation mooney pod that um frank frivolous wade had had mentioned before under his own name as well um and i'll second what what you said wade about about the compassion that he extended to those guys you know he didn't get into all this crazy woo woo deep state stuff he just went to their level and really met them where they were and talked to them as an old timer, you know, coaching these, these, these young moonies that are trying to figure out what, what's up. And 
you know, that's the interview that he did, but it, in private conversations, he was, he talked about how important that work was for him uh, to be that sounding board and to give some guidance and be gentle about it and not be like really pushy and whatever, you know, to, yeah, to you're these making younger. A, you're you're making ahead. an important point. I'm going to have to interject. Please. Uh, par part of the recovery process from Colts is uh, they don't, um, it's, it's very personal and it's emotional. And those are usually the hooks that cult leaders use to drag people in. And so the process of recovery, you have to back up over all of those connections and sever them and, and replace them with something valid. And uh, Ed was definitely an emotional person, but he also understood the kids, uh, the process of recovery for the kids. So he didn't want to hit them with the political stuff right away. Yeah, and, and he, he was explicit about that. Like, on purpose, I'm not going to go there with these guys because they're not ready for it, and they don't need it. It's That's not what it's about. It's about where they're at emotionally, like you said. Yeah. yeah. He's really heart smart when it in that way, you know? Yeah. But, but, but one, back to one, what I was saying. Oh, um, okay, please, please continue. Well, I'm no, just going to uh, let me just add one more thing is that once you recovered from the cult, you see cults everywhere. And I see them. I see the same tactics coming through the mainstream media. I mean, we live we live in a cult, a cultish existence right now. All of the same tactics that cults use to manipulate people are, are being used right now. It's like a gumbo of different cults. No, from our government. <laughs> The mind control yeah. tactics are in use right now. Yeah. All you got to do is turn on the news, right? Yep. Well, on, in that moral rearmament episode, um, Recluse, you'd asked him a question about correcting the record on what some different researchers over decades had had to say about the moral rearmament connection to the early Moonies. And he just broke it down. Like, here's what Wayne Madsen had to say. Here's what this uh, ex-Scientology blog that, that he was aware of it had to say. Here's what Executive Intelligence Review it had to say about the connections between moral rearmament and the Unification Church in the early days. And he just broke it down point by point. And like that, that episode, like I, I'm taking – I'm literally taking notes off of it. You know, like for my own research, just let's convert the audio to text here and get the really important points about Young and Kim and their little internships in Mackinac Island or whatever. Like that was novel, um, really hard hitting and, and I, I'm not going to lie, very obscure and kind of esoteric aspect of some uh, the moral rearmament people. Nobody remembers them. You know, they're they're. Unless you go to like AA meetings, you have no connection to them whatsoever. But that early connection between MRA and the Moonies was super important, especially in East Asia. And he just broke it down. That was like one of his greatest moments. And it was his first time ever appearing on any podcast, you know. Um, anyway, the uh, connecting Carl Maria Stanley at that um, Captive Nations conference and uh, 
the something having to do with him meeting with some Korean people in the late fifties or early. 60s. Oh, it was actually it was, like, it, was uh, it was Walter Profeta, uh, but yeah, Walter the American, Profeta, Orthodox, I'm sorry. American Orthodox yeah. Catholic Church. Oh, you're fine, you're fine, and yeah, no, that was a great one. Um, yeah, no, I actually I uh, had worked that factoid into the book I'm currently on, uh, working on with uh, Ed's assistance. Yeah, um, connecting at the Ashtar Command. To the Moonies, uh, Michael X. Barton, who appears in um, Nicholas Goodrich Clark's uh, Black Sun book, talking about the proliferation of Nazi UFO memes. And it was Don Diligent who said, yeah, actually, that guy was connected with the Moonies. It's not in any book. It's just not like like you have to listen to the farm to suss that out. Like I'm just giving some like examples of, of some of the things that the guy brought to the table that were just stuff you won't find anywhere else. You know, he, he just prolific, prolific mind, you know, um, it wasn't just moon per se, but it was the whole network. Like, like you're saying when, when, uh, when him and Moss started talking, they're, they're clicking on all kinds of stuff. Cause he, in, in, in uh, researching the Moonies, it expands out to the, the Ukrainians and the, the ABN and it expands out to the, the new right and the council for national policy. It expands out in the sovereign order of St. John it expands out in the UFO uh, cult stuff. And he had that stuff just on command in his mind when we would talk. That's why I wish I'd um, recorded some of those, uh, those early conversations um, and, and I'll tell you when we did the, the wackle series, you know, I, I, I literally am just some hack out in the desert. I, I, I still am. And I'm proud of it. It's fine. I don't, I don't mind it, but, um, you know, you're, you recluse are trying to get this podcasting going in 2020 and you're like, Keith, you should be on my episodes. And I'm like, ah, it's going to be on the internet forever. And I'm, I, I just feel like an imposter, like I don't belong on any of this stuff. And what if we get some stuff wrong? And uh, we're talking about history, but it's also kind of bleeds into journalism because some of these people are still alive and they're not good people. They're like evil fucking people. Um, you know, it's, you know, like I don't want to be seen. I don't want to feel like seen and like exposed and whatever. And then I think about Don Diligent. And how he's signing up to do the thing. And he's got a lot more at stake than I do. And what what kind of courage does this guy have to, to do what he did? And it's like I borrowed some courage from, from Don Diligent, you know, to, to, to be part of that series. And he, he lent some of that to me. And um, I'm very grateful um, for that. The last thing I'll say about him as a researcher is that he was really hesitant about being over speculative about stuff. He really wanted to, to stick with what kind of things you could prove uh, versus letting your imagination run wild and, 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 you know, indulge yourself in, in over speculating on things. And uh, he was very disciplined about making sure he had his uh, ducks in a row before he would say anything. And when he was speculating, he would always say, I'm speculating. I'm putting on my speculator hat. And so, you know, where you can count on what he's saying versus his, him, him taking an educated guess, you know, 
man, that kind of discipline, even on the hoof in, in the context of like delivering an oral history of Wackle or whatever in a podcast format, I really uh, appreciate it. And I learned a lot from that because it's really important that people get it right. If they're going to do research and do speculate, you know, if you're going to speculate, just, just give your disclaimer up front. And if you're on solid ground, then just go ahead and say it. And he was really good about separating the two. And I, I really appreciated and respected that. Yeah, that's one thing about Ed as a researcher that can't be emphasized enough. Uh, I mean, he was just so thorough about, uh, you know, pointing out what we could definitively prove and, you know, what was uh, simply informed speculation on our part. Um, yeah. I can uh, remember an anecdote here uh, involving Moss and I and uh, Ed to some extent. Uh, a little bit lighter side of Ed. Uh, this had to do when Moss and I were in DC. Gosh, I think it was what about two or three months ago uh, for the Captive Nations, uh, you know, shindig that they have every year. Uh, Victims of Communism Memorial Fund, I think it is. Um, it was certainly an otherworldly event. Uh, I even wrote about it on my blog. But yeah, uh, you know, being there with Paula Dobryansky and, um, you know, some of these other characters that we have written about. Um, of course, you know, Moss and I, or at least I know I was sending uh, Ed some updates about that. And um, anyway, we were supposed to be going to downtown to, uh, you know, get some footage of these buildings that uh, played into the thesis that he was working on for the documentary. Um, you know, and then of course, uh, Moss and I had ended up, uh, uh, swinging by, uh, one of the, uh, vendors of, uh, cannabis, uh, before we had gone to do that. And, uh, unfortunately that had led me to putting in the wrong address in my phone. And yeah, we ended up wandering around DC pretty aimlessly, I think for like, what was it? Two hours or something like that, Moss. I really wish he could have been there. I mean, that would have. Yes. Um, but I did, you know, because he kept asking me how it went, how it went. So then when I was heading home from DC, I finally had to call Ed up and like tell him, you know, like, uh, yeah, uh, Moss and I got high and we got lost in DC. So there was no footage. Um, so there was like, <laughs> there was this long pause, like on the phone, and then Ed just busted out laughing. And he's like, Oh, my God, that takes me back to the 70s or something like that. Um, so uh, he at least got an account of that. And I think he kind of felt like he was a bit there in spirit anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, there was definitely a lot of that kind of stuff with that too, that uh, he had a thorough sense of humor about and uh, he kind of would have to having to work with me. So yeah. Uh, well, Keith, so so recluse, recluse, can I uh, just give you my last thoughts and my last interactions with the uh, with you uh, certainly can, sir. All right. This will be my last word. Um, the last time I talked to him, like I said, I was, you know, he was having some really heavy problems with his health, but also things about his son and about whether or not he should do some documentary thing, if that ever happens. And, uh, you know, we kind of talked and, uh, I already talked about that. So a couple of days later, you know, he's sending me on Skype as he often did um, something from tparents.org or just whatever gold panning things he would find little bitty nuggets and he would send them to me. And sometimes when I'm at, you know, 
at work or whatever, I would respond to them. And sometimes I wouldn't, depending on how busy I was. And uh, The last message I got from him was <clears throat> the Wednesday before he passed. And it was a, a long series of quotes from Moon's speech at the Dirksen Senate building, I think it was, sometime in the 90s, where Moon had his weird coronation thing. And the weird kumbaya thing with all the different religions of the world and all this kind of bullshit that Moon would always put on. And um, so he was sending me these quotes from it and a link, of course, to it. And uh, and I didn't respond to it as I sometimes did not because I figured I had time. You know, I figured I had time. I could get back with them later. And then, sorry, my dogs are barking. And then uh, I had to, I had to get away from everybody. You know, it's like spend more time with your family. And it's like, well, sometimes, yeah, you can't. So I went up, I went up to the mountains as, as I often do, or at least once or two or three times a year, just to get away by myself and go up in the mountains and play guitar and camp and be by myself. And most of the times over the last year that I've done that. I wound up putting a call into him because I had nothing else going on, had no other schedule, had no other obligations. And I was just up there by myself and I could just talk to him. And I meant to call him um, to just kind of catch up and just talk with him. You know, I, I talked, I talked with him um, about once a week for most of the last year, uh, one to two weeks, maybe two weeks out between conversations on a, on a bad week or whatever. But I talked to this guy almost once a week for the last year and a half. Okay. And I'd planned on calling him and then I spaced it. I was playing guitar or whatever. And I, I just didn't. And that was a Friday night. And then I get the call on Sunday morning and find out that from you recluse that he, that he'd passed. And, uh, and I just went through all the stages of grief or whatever. Like I want confirmation of this. I don't believe it until I find out. And you know, he, he's an ex Mooney, right? So the, your mind goes right to this, like there must be some kind of foul play thing. You know, if you ever look up the story, look, go to Wikipedia or Google Robert Botticher, the guy that wrote gifts of deceit. If you want an example, like that guy got harassed. He was the lead researcher for the, Frazier committee that investigated the Moonies in the seventies. He worked for a Minnesota congressman named Frazier and uh, the results of his research for the Frazier committee became a book called gifts of deceit. And when it came out, you know, he got his house burned down he got harassed and he got stalked and whatever. And eventually he threw himself off a building early recipient of the Gary Webb award you know, uh, his payment, his wages for, uh, for having the courage to actually talk about the Moonies in the late seventies and early eighties. And so when you, when you have a friend that's an ex Mooney like that, that's doing the kind of things that Don Diligent was doing, your brain goes right to that place. Like, Oh, you know, they got him or something, you know? And I don't think that, but I'm not going to say I didn't flirt with the idea when we found out. So one of the stages of grief in the case of somebody that's was affiliated with like a literal deep state cult um, is 
you know, they got him or whatever, you know, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the case, but anyway, the point is I didn't, I didn't call him. And, um, when I found out that he'd passed away, um, I immediately just regretted not calling him and kicked myself and hated myself for, you know, a few days for not, cause like, like as if I could have made a difference or something, if I'd have just called him, maybe he wouldn't have died that night or, I, you know, it's, it's just dumb, right? Like, like, as if you haven't, as if you can control anything, you can't, you know, um, but whatever, man, I just wanted to say that. And, uh, it was my honor to be his friend and I felt like he was my friend and he confided a lot in me. And I can see from the eulogy that got put up on how well do you know your moon um, this week that went into some of the things that I knew about. But you could tell that he compartmentalized some things. I think like, like we were talking about before about when he was talking to these young Moonies, these um, second generation guys, he's compartmentalizing what he's telling them because they're not ready for certain things. You just got to meet them where they are. And he was really good at that. And he hid from all of us, the son of a bitch. He hid from all of us how much of a toll the work that he was doing with us was taking on him. Uh, what, what a toll it was taking on him to do that with us. And um, he became Don Diligent to redeem himself from those, those decades that he spent in that cult. And we had the opportunity to play a little bit part in Don Diligent's redemption of his own soul. He went to work on his own soul and his own spirit when he had his awakening and he left. And he accumulated all this top-notch research. And that research was looking for a place to ground and come to earth and manifest. And we gave him that with our Wackle series. And that means the world to me. I will take it to my grave. I'm so glad to have uh, been part of his journey. And I'm, I'm proud to have been his friend. And that's the last I'm going to say. Thank you, Keith. So eight years ago, I uh, kind of feel like I started this journey, uh, which we're in the current stage of right now. When I uh, first put together the uh, World Anti-Communist League series, as I uh, had talked about at the beginning of this show, um, I really didn't know what to expect when I started chronicling Wackle. And um, certainly, uh, one of the things that I did not expect in the least about it uh, was to acquire um, a lot of the best friends that I've ever had in my life. Uh, many of them uh, were sitting in on this podcast uh, with us tonight. Uh, unfortunately, John Brisson uh, will not be able to join us due to those car troubles, but uh, I would certainly include John in that category as well. And um, also my best friend, uh, the one that the Lost Tecos episode of uh, Wackle was dedicated to, uh, Keith and uh, Clay got to meet Bestie uh, in Utah uh, this past uh, summer, so they know who I'm talking about. Uh, but I got to meet pretty much all of these people in some way or other uh, through doing Wackle, uh, which has been an unbelievable blessing in my life. Uh, and in the case of Ed and Bestie, um, 
the thing about uh, both of them is someone who's written about cults uh, for many years, you know, I've always had this fascination with them and recognized their importance. Uh, but, you know, as Keith was kind of alluding to before, you know, I was always doing this as a detached scholar, you know, somebody sort of looking at this, uh, you know, from, a, you know, underneath a microscope or something like that. Uh, but what I learned, you know, through knowing Ed and uh, my best friend uh, is just how much cults can truly hurt people. And uh, specifically in the case of both of them, they're really exceptional and uh, incredible people on so many levels. And, uh, you know, it breaks my heart to think that uh, they were hurt in the way that they were by cults. And, um, you know, I think that's like something in all of this that uh, more than anything I came to learn uh, through Ed and doing this Wackle series was that <clears throat> it was important in the sense of uh, trying to help people who had been hurt in the fashion that they had been through these cults and to try to recognize, you know, just what it was like for the victims of cults. Because I mean, there are a lot of them out there and, you know, they even, they have suffered greatly through these various experiences. You know, we've gotten to this a little bit in this show, but I mean, it's important to remember that. And, um, you know, I can never, you know, begin to totally understand what Ed went through or what my best friend went through uh, growing up or what Wade has gone through. Um, I at least feel like uh, it has been personalized somewhat in having known them and, you know, people that I've grown to greatly admire and respect on so many levels and just seeing, you know, the kind of tragedy that they had to endure through their experiences with cults. That's, you know, and also something that I will be internally grateful for, because I think it is uh, important, you know, when you go through all this stuff to remember uh, that there are real human beings that are affected by all this. And that is really uh, what has to be front and center when you try to tackle this material. Uh, themselves and their families. And their families. Uh, and that's kind you of- You can be a casualty of a cult without ever joining. Mm-hmm. And that's also an important thing to remember because, I mean, you know, as we've sort of gotten to before, fundamentally, that's one of the big things cults do. They destroy families. Um, that's why I've continued to come back to Wackle uh, time and again, even though it is such a difficult subject to write about and to podcast and all this other stuff about. Because there are so many victims of all of this all across the globe. Uh and yeah, that's a lot of broken families that they've left in their wake. And I've tried to do this for these years. It's not always been fun, but I did get to have some amazing friends in my life. Uh, so why you guys are here with me, big thank you to all of you who are still sitting in here with us. Alex had to leave and I believe Moss's phone died. Uh, but Keith, Clay, and Wade too, you know, I've appreciated you guys always being here with me in my journey, and especially you, Keith, who I would uh, consider to be one of my best uh, friends, most close buddies. So, you know, it's a Thanks, great man. thing to come out of this. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. It's been, uh, it's been an honor to get to know you and uh, you, you as well, Keith. Um, it was great to meet up with you guys out there and in salt lake uh it was wonderful and uh 
Uh, Wade, I don't know you yet, but you're definitely a kindred spirit with us. Um, and uh, it's, it's just uh, great to be here to celebrate uh, Ed with such amazing people. So thank you for putting this together. Absolutely. I have a question for Clay. Sure. Uh, are you going to continue with the documentary? Um, it's, it's something we're discussing right now uh, between us and uh, we'd like to, we would certainly like to. Um, okay. We just never, you know, we never truly got Ed's official blessing. So we, you know, we have to um, kind of see where, where it stands and, and all that. Um, but uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, the documentary itself could be a great tribute to Ed's work too. A absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so uh, it's something we certainly want to do, but we, we want to have a further discussion about it. And, uh, hopefully we can, we can make that happen. Great. Yeah. Mm. Well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, Ed definitely was an exceptional human being, um, but he wasn't the only casualty. <laughs> Remember that. Yeah. And uh, don't forget, uh, this is an ongoing, this is an ongoing thing. I mean, cults, uh, whoever the power elites are, they love cults. And um, any way that they can minimize their exposure, uh, they're going to do that. And if they have, you know, and they don't care about other people's lives or families. So yeah. it's an ongoing battle. Very much so. And I mean, that is something that's important to keep in mind and something that I hope all of you guys listening to this will uh, take away from it. And uh, on a closing note here, before we sign off, uh, I would uh, like to offer my sincere condolences uh, to Barbara, uh, Ed's brother, uh, Lucy, and uh, of course, his son. Uh, I'm not sure if the uh, latter two will ever uh, get to hear this, but um, please do know that uh, I really did grow to love Ed and um, I hope the best to you and sincerely do and also to his uh, mother and the rest of his family um, you know he was very dear to all of us and um, obviously this will never bring him back um, but you know I hope that uh, you can find some solace in knowing that Ed did touch a great number of lives and um there are many people out there who want to keep his legacy alive and continue his work because that's how much he meant to us. And not just uh, as a researcher, but I mean, also as a person, as an inspiration and who he was. So please keep that in mind. Thank you, Don Diligent. Okay. Thank you for being our friend. All right. Thanks for recluse. And uh, hopefully we can keep the dialogue going. Absolutely. Wade. Absolutely. Okay. All right, on that note, good night, all. Good night, Wade. We're going to wrap up then. Good night and good luck to you.